All right, we come now in our worship of the Lord together this morning to the preaching of His Word. So if you're here this morning and you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1. And I want us this morning to get our eyes on John's prologue, the first 18 verses. And this is a text that exalts our Lord Jesus Christ. It exalts Christ. And I want to tell you on the front end that my goal and my aim this morning is that our hearts would be full of the things of Jesus. That's where we're headed. That's what we're aiming for. That's what we're going for. And I want you to know that there's two different ways to do this preaching thing that, that we're about to enter into. And one is to aim at felt needs of your hearers. And there are plenty of those this morning. There are felt needs all across this room. Real needs that you're aware of, that you're conscious of. And we could spend time addressing uh, God's Word and bringing it to bear on those felt needs. But there's another way to do this. And the other way is that, that we would aim at our ultimate need, whether we feel it or not, whether we're conscious of it or not. And our ultimate need this morning and every Lord's Day when we gather is that our hearts would be full of Jesus, full of Christ. Our hearts were made to rejoice in Jesus Christ. And so that's the ultimate need all across the room this morning. And that's what we're aiming for. I want us, as we enter into this Christmas week, to have hearts full. Hearts full of the glory of Jesus Christ. Ready to worship Jesus Christ. I want us to, to stand in awe of the wonder of Christmas. That we wouldn't just hear it and remember it as though it were true. This true little story. But it... But that it would be seen as it truly is. Wonderful, majestic, full of glory. That the eternal Son of God became a man for us and for our salvation. I want us to remember Christ together this morning. And I want us to remind ourselves that when Jesus was born, the angel said... That this is a story of good news, of great joy for all peoples. And that's what we're aiming for together this morning. That we would rejoice in our Savior. That our minds would be instructed. But even past that, that our hearts would be full of praise to Christ. And so brothers and sisters, I want us to treasure Jesus together. I want us to... To treasure Him. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I pray, even as we begin, that you would receive the greatest gift of Christmas. That you would be among these that we're about to read about in this prologue. Those that receive the Son. Those that believe in His name. Those that receive the right to be called children of God. And I want us all, all to know as we begin together that you cannot receive what you do not know. You cannot treasure the Christ that you do not know. And so we want to give attention 
as we work through God's word together of these particular truths about Jesus Christ. Not just I love Jesus in this vague sense, but I love Jesus as he is revealed in these particular ways. His particular glory. And we need the help of the Holy Spirit as we begin. And so let's pray and let's ask for God's help. As we enter into this time of the preaching of the word, let's pray together. Lord, we come to you this morning with hearts ready to worship you, Lord. This is why we are gathered in your name, Lord Jesus, is to to bring you praise, to hail you as king of all, king of glory, king of grace, king of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, you are our treasure. You're the greatest thing that's ever that's ever come into our minds or our hearts. You are the one for whom we were made. Help us to worship you. Holy Spirit, we ask for your help in this time. That you would reveal Christ. That you would guide us into all the truth, that you would set our hearts on fire, Lord, with a passion For our Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would be with my mouth. Lord, guard it. Help me to speak true things from your word. Be with our ears, Lord. Help us to to lean in and give attention to what you say about your son, Jesus. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would visit us. That you would reveal glory. The glory of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's read God's word together. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me 
because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. And if I had to title this sermon, I titled it this morning, The Doctrine of Christmas. In fact, I titled it The Twelve Doctrines of Christmas. A doctrine for every day. The Twelve Doctrines of Christmas. And the reason why I want to highlight that word doctrine has something to do with the uniqueness of the Gospel of John. And you've noticed this if you've ever read through the Gospels, that there's something different about the Gospel of John than, than the other three Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the synoptic Gospels, the similar Gospels. And John stands in this unique place. He gives us a unique perspective on Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about how this relates to the birth of Jesus. John gives us a unique perspective. Matthew chapter 2 and Luke chapter 2 tell the story, the historical narrative of how Jesus was born. The story of how he came into the world. But John's gospel gives us a different perspective. It's not the historical narrative. He gives us the theological perspective. And we see this and even as we read this prologue that John backs up not only to the beginning of the Bethlehem story, but all the way back to the beginning of time. And he shows us the nature of Jesus Christ in a unique way. And so the Gospel of, of John gives us this theological perspective from the very beginning. And John desires that we know just who it is that came to us 2,000 years ago. Just who is he? What is his nature? Why is he here? We have this theological perspective in John's prologue. And the very heart of this passage is found in verse 14, where John tells us that the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. The enfleshing, the embodiment, the coming as a man of the eternal Son of God. This is what Christians, every Christian, ought to think about every single time you hear the word Christmas is the Word became flesh. Incarnation. The embodiment of the Son of God. God made man every single time. The Christ-centeredness of Christmas does not happen automatically. And we know that as followers of Jesus. Christ-centeredness doesn't happen automatically in any area of our Christian life. We have to fight for it. Fight for the supremacy of Christ. And Christmas is no different. Christmas is about the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the degree that you're going to cherish 
the incarnation, the doctrine of Christmas, the true doctrine of Christmas is directly connected to the degree that you understand the nature of the Christmas child, the baby born in Bethlehem. You're never going to get it. You're never going to get it unless you understand who he is. That there is none like him. Who is the Christmas child? What is he like? Why is he here? John 1 answers these questions for us in 12 different ways. The 12 doctrines of Christmas. We have a lot to cover this morning. And so we're going to start with these glimpses of Jesus. Number one this morning, John shows us the nature of Jesus Christ. Number one, he shows us that Jesus Christ is eternal. Jesus is eternal. And this is important. Before Jesus was born, John says he was. And that's really different than anybody else in the room. Before we were born, we were nothing. Before Jesus was born, he was. This is what he says in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. That this one who came to us in flesh in verse 14 was in the beginning with God. He's eternal. He is without beginning. This means that a true understanding of Christmas and celebrating the Christ of Christmas goes way back further than 2,000 years ago. It didn't start in Bethlehem. It didn't even start in the womb of Mary. John says it started in the beginning. And in the beginning, this one wasn't even created. He was. He was. And every parent knows how unique, how utterly other this claim is about God. And the reason we know is sometime in those first few years we get this question. Mama... Or daddy, who made the birds? God made the birds. Who made the dogs? God made the dogs. Who made, who made the rain, mama? God made the rain. Who made the mountains and the sea and the sun and the stars? God made it all. God made it all. God made it all. And then here it comes. Mama, daddy, who made God? Who made God? And then the parent responds, nobody made God. Like, what do you, what do you mean? Uh, nobody made, but God, God, God exists, right? Yes, son, God exists, but he was uncreated. Nobody made him. Then where did he start, mama? God didn't have a beginning. God didn't start anywhere. God was, God is, God is to come. And all of a sudden it hits him. Oh my, God is not like any other. God is not like anything else that I could possibly know. He's distinctly different. Everything else is created. And He alone is Creator. This is the claim that John is making about Jesus Christ. He is eternal. He does not have a beginning. He is the beginning. The beginning comes from Him. He has no beginning. In fact, one of the names of Jesus is, He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. 
first and last word of the Greek alphabet. He's the beginning and the end. He doesn't have a beginning and he has no end. He's eternal. He is eternal. It's this earth-shaking claim. You mean that's the nature of the one who came to us? He never had a beginning? In the beginning was the word. Now the prophets prophesied this. They prophesied this. The prophet Micah prophesied that it would be nothing less than the eternal God who would come to the village of Bethlehem. The the exact place where Jesus was born was prophesied hundreds of years before he came. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. The prophet says, From you, O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. The eternal one is going to come. The one without beginning. And John says, this is the one who was made flesh. In the beginning was the word. Jesus Christ is eternal. We have so many glimpses here of the glory of Christ. Number two, Jesus Christ is presented to us in John's prologue as the only son from the father. And I want, you, I, I want you to see how beautiful this is. Every single glimpse of the uniqueness of this one. Verse 14, he is the only son of the Father. And we have these bookends, verse 1 and verse 18 of this prologue. And they repeat the same themes. They're like bookends on a shelf. Okay, They repeat the same truths about Jesus. And this is called an inclusio. You frame in something. On both sides. In verse 1, John says this about Jesus. He was, he was with God. He was the Word with God. He was the only Son of the Father in verse 14. He's with God in verse 1. And then in verse 18, he says it in a little different way. John says that he is the only God in the bosom of the Father. In, at the Father's side, in the Father's bosom, you have it. It explained these three different ways of the closeness of the Son to the Father. He is with Him. He is in His bosom. He is His only Son. And what does this mean for us? This means that Jesus Christ, who has been being revealed to us in John 1, He has perfect knowledge of the Father. He knows God perfectly. He's with him. He is his only son. He is in the father's bosom. This is how how it's said in, in Matthew 11, verse 27. No one knows the father except the son. Full stop. And I wonder when's the last time you thought about that? That there is a knowledge of the Father that no one has except the Son. Now, why would the Son have such knowledge? Because He was in the beginning with God. He was with God. He's at the Father's side. He is the only Son of the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. Only the Son knows the Father. And this next claim is really close. Therefore, he is the only one who can reveal the Father. He is the only one 
who can reveal the Father. Which brings us to our next glorious glimpse of Jesus Christ. Number three, Jesus Christ and He alone reveals the Father. Maybe you've scratched your head before and you've wondered, I mean, this is glorious and I think it's awesome, but why is he called the Word here? Why, is he, why doesn't it say in the beginning was the Son? Why does it say in the beginning was the Word? In verse 1, John says the Word was with God. Not the thought, not the feeling, not this concept or this feeling but the Word draws our attention to God's communication, God's Word, the self-disclosure of God, God revealed. That's who Jesus is. That's who the Son is from all eternity. He is God revealed. His nature is to reveal the Father. He is the Word. He always has been. He always will be. He is the revelation of God. And so every human being needs to square this this truth claim. You need to consider this. That God reveals Himself through the Son. And here's here's the next important piece. And only through the Son. God reveals Himself through the Word. There is a Word from the beginning. It's Jesus. It's Christ. There's no other way to know God. You must know God through the Word, through the Son, through Jesus. And this is exactly what he says at the end of the prologue. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, John says. But the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. If you want to know God, you have to come through Jesus. You have to know God through the Son, through the Word. And so there's an exclusiveness here. Not only a uniqueness that there's no one like Jesus, there's an exclusiveness to this baby in the Bethlehem manger. It is through Him. It is through Him alone that we can know God. We cannot know the Father apart from the Son. And this is why Jesus later in John's Gospel says things like this. John 14 verse 6, Jesus says, No man comes to the Father except through me. Back in Matthew 11 verse 27, it says, No one knows the Father except the Son. And to anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. If you want to know God, you have to deal with Jesus Christ. He has to reveal God to you. Why why in the world would He be the only one that could do this? Because He was in the beginning with God. Because He's the only Son from the Father. Because He's in the bosom of the Father. He perfectly knows God. No one can know God apart from Jesus. There's an exclusiveness to this Christ. Now what right would John have to make this claim To say that this is the word. Not one of the words and pick your path, but the word. The word. The self-disclosure of God. What would give John a right to to make such a claim? Number four, Jesus Christ is God. In verse one, he says this explicitly. 
The Word was God. The Word was God. Maybe some of you have thought this or interacted with someone who rejects the doctrine of the Trinity. Said the word Trinity is never in the Bible. I've read it. The word Godhead is in the Bible. So you've got to deal with it one way or the other. And then you come to verses like this, and there are probably hundreds of them, where you have this figure, this person, that's distinguished from God. He's with God. And then the very next phrase, he's equated with God. He is God. He's with. So is he with God or is he God? And John says, yes. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal. Jesus is the Word. And John says that he is God. The eternal Son is God from the beginning of time. He says the same thing in verse 18. He calls Jesus the only God who is at the Father's side. He does it twice in the prologue. And so we, we, we got to understand on the front end, who are we dealing with? When we celebrate Christmas, when we talk about the uniqueness of Jesus, is we're talking about not an incarnate angel, we're not even talking about the highest created being. We are talking about infinite, eternal glory made flesh. The Word was God. He's the only God. He is God. And yet He was made flesh. It's glorious. It's the highest thing that can be claimed for Jesus Christ. is deity. Full deity. The miracle of Christmas. That this baby in the manger is nothing less than God in human flesh. And again, the prophets of old prophesied this. This is what God promised through his prophets. Isaiah 7 verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now I want to submit to you that there are actually two miracles in that prophecy. And the second is greater than the first. The first miracle is the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. That's a miracle, right? Anybody ever seen that? Never happened before. Never happened since. Never happened again. That the virgin conceived and had a son. Miracle. That God created life. God created a human being without means. Kind of like he did in the Garden of Eden when he scooped up some dirt and breathed into Adam the breath of life. God created life without means. Miracle. But the second miracle is actually greater than the first, that the one who would be created without means would be God with us, Emmanuel. That there would be this little baby, this helpless child that would have two natures. 
Every other baby who came before him had one nature. He was a man, 100% man and only a man. This baby was unique in that he was fully God and fully man. That it could be said about this child, that's God with us. Isaiah says it in a different way. Isaiah 9.6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We got to pause. We got to learn to stop, slow down and take this in. That there was a baby born whose name was Mighty God. You feel the wonder of that? The majestic wonder of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He's God. Number five, Jesus Christ is the uncreated creator of all things. Verse 3, John says, all things were made through him. Colossians chapter 1 says it a little different way. Colossians 1.16, by him all things were created. Before he was born, he was eternal. He was the creator of all that is. And just, just so we don't get confused, John says in, in a negative way. And without him was not anything made that was made. In case you didn't get it the first time, all things means all things. Jesus was not made. He was not created. He was the creator of the ends of the earth. This means every molecule of matter, every form of energy, from the smallest of, uh, of energy to nuclear explosions and supernovas, everything that we can see, and even things that we cannot see, like gravity and logic and all the angels of heaven and the unseen realm, everything that is was made by Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 4, this is one of the things, just one of the glorious perfections that God is worshipped for perpetually. Revelation 4 tells us that there are beings in the presence of God, living creatures, who are constantly bringing forth praise and glory and honor. And we are told that over and over and over again in the throne room of heaven is heard, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God is perpetually worshipped as the creator. You made everything, Lord. Everything, Lord. You alone. As we bring this truth into the Christmas story, we understand the shocking thing that's being claimed about Jesus Christ coming into the world. This would mean that he made the woman that would nurse him. You see, he, she's all things. Mary's all things. Jesus made her. 
the eternal son made her. That he would enter into this state where he would be dependent upon the one who is dependent upon him. He's the creator, the maker. And what about Herod? This evil king that's about to try to kill him, Jesus made him. Jesus made him. And even more than that, he sustains this man's life while this evil king tries to murder him. It's a shocking claim that he's the maker, the creator of all life. Number six, Jesus Christ is the source of all spiritual life and light. Not only did he create all physical life, Jesus is the source of all spiritual life. Verse four, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. Now, these become beautiful, beautiful doctrines throughout John's gospel. Jesus portrayed as, give, as the light giver, the light of the world. Jesus portrayed as the resurrection and the life who comes to give life to the world. Life, light, Jesus Christ. They're beautiful as we trace them out through John's gospel. Later in the gospel, Jesus explains these word pictures in this way. John chapter 8 verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Receive Jesus. And he says, you won't walk in darkness. You'll have the light of life. And so John's. Proclaiming in this prologue the one who's coming to, as the light giver and the light bearer. Life and light to those who live in darkness and death. And these metaphors tell us something about us. They, they don't just tell us something about Jesus. They tell us something about us. They describe our lost condition. If he's life and light, we are darkness and death. We are the ones who need the light and life of Jesus Christ. And I hope you understand this. That you need life that you don't have by merely being physically alive. There's another kind of life that you need. And the Bible describes sinners and their state of separation from Christ in this Terrible dual reality of dead in trespasses and sins, yet walking after the course of this world. What does it mean to be lost? It means being a dead man walking. It means being alive in a certain sense. I'm alive in this world. I'm drawing breath in this world. I'm walking through this world. But I'm dead, dead, dead in a spiritual sense. In my sin. We need a life that addresses our spiritual deadness. We need the kind of sight that we do not have by merely physically seeing. You need to understand this. Scripture says that apart from Jesus, you are blind. And if your response is, sir, I'm seeing just fine. The Bible knows that. There's a sight that you need that far exceeds your physical eyes. 
This is a terrifying thing that you look around and you see all you think is there. But the Bible says blind. You cannot see. You cannot see things of the spirit. You cannot see the glory of Jesus Christ. There's a blindness that has to be overpowered by the light that Jesus gives and only Jesus can give. He is the life and he is the light. And these are things that can only be found in him. In him was life. He is the only savior, the only remedy. And every single person who has Jesus has light and has life. Every single person. John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son does not have life. He came... To give us eternal life. And eternal life is in Him and Him alone. Number seven, Jesus Christ is the object of the prophetic witness. He's the object of what prophets prophesy about. In verse six, John the Baptist came to bear witness about Jesus. Says it again in verse 15. This is the one. This is the one that God showed me. This is the prophetic ministry in Israel. It's not pointing to themselves, pointing to another. Pointing to God's chosen one. I want you to think about this. It's a great privilege to be called as one of God's prophets. To stand in this small group of privileged and chosen servants of the Lord. To hear the counsel of God. And to deliver his word. Thus says the Lord. Great privilege for a sinner. But I want you to think about how much greater the privilege is. How much higher the privilege is to be the one who is prophesied about. Not just to be the prophet. But to be the one that the prophet points to. The one who is prophesied about. That's Jesus Christ. He is the object of prophecy. And John stands at the end of a long line of Old Testament prophets who have been bearing witness about the Son, the coming one. And perhaps the clearest place to see this is by giving attention to Jesus' title in verse 17. Jesus Christ. Christ. I don't know if uh, everyone here has heard this, but it's very important. That you understand that Christ is not Jesus' last name. Jesus is not, it's not like Dustin Cook. It's not like that. It's not Jesus Christ as his last name. Christ is his title. Christ is a title. It's the the word Messiah. It means anointed one. The one who is given the spirit without measure. The one who is prophesied the long expected Savior. And there's a whole prophetic tradition all throughout God's word of this prophesied one who is coming to bring salvation. He's the object of prophecy. He is the Christ. Acts chapter 10 says it this way. 
To him, Jesus, listen, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. All the prophets bear witness to him, to Jesus. You like to dig into prophecy? You like to study it? Does that concept just, just really scratch, your, you know, get your attention? Behold the object of prophecy. The Lord Jesus Christ in all of his splendor. The one whom all the prophets prophesied about. Number eight, Jesus Christ is God incarnate. Verse 14, we come back to this phrase that summarizes the doctrine of Christmas. The word became flesh. The word became flesh. And there's the wonder. There's the miracle. There's the, I know some things. I got my mind filled up with the truths about Jesus, but I'm ready to worship I'm ready to give you glory and honor and praise because there's no one like you. The greatest miracle that ever was was the maker in a manger. The infinite God come as infant. The God of light in a world of darkness. The highest of kings in the lowest of places, the humble manger at Bethlehem. Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus left this, this state of equality with God and he made himself nothing. The one who was in the form of God took the form of a servant. The ultimate condescension. The ultimate condescension. Remaining who he was. God, He didn't give up anything. Remaining who He was, God, He became who He was not, man. Fully God, fully man. And is it not amazing that when He came to us, that He doesn't come as the, the, the highest of kings in the height of His strength? I'm thinking like, you know, 30 years old, muscles bulging out everywhere, that anybody who looks at him knows that he could slaughter you in a moment. He didn't come to us like that. He comes in servant form. He comes as the child in the manger. He comes and enters in to this totally dependent state to be nursed and cared for even by his parents. To enter into the full human experience. To be tempted every way that we are yet without sin. To accrue over 30 years of perfect righteousness. What kind of reception did he have? Luke's gospel tell us, tells us that heavenly choirs begin to sing at the birth of Jesus. You remember that? We sang it just a minute ago. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. Now imagine hearing thousands of angels. Sing to Jesus Christ in the manger. And make sure we get out of our head like the little you know, choir boy understanding of an angel. We're talking about beings that can slaughter 10,000 in a moment of time. Imagine them giving praise and honor and glory to the baby in Bethlehem. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God. He's here. The Savior has come. He is the Christ. 
born in Bethlehem. What about man? That's how the angels responded. What about mankind? Surely we rolled out the red carpet for such a glorious king. We should have thrown a worldwide banquet of honor that we, men and women of dust of the earth, would be visited in grace by the incarnate God. There should have been a worldwide party. He's here. He's here. Hail to the king. But this is not what happened. Number nine, Jesus Christ was rejected by many. Verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now I want you to think of the amount of guilt that's involved with such a statement. This is not rejecting your buddy. That's been a good friend of yours for your whole life. This is not even like rejecting a parent who has cared for you your whole life. I want you to think of the amount of guilt that's attached to this rejection. That the eternal God would come out of eternity and into time. That the maker would enter into creation. That the God of grace would bring light and life in the world of darkness and death. And that we would say, nah, what's for lunch? Can you imagine the offense to God? Can you imagine the offense to God of rejecting the incarnate Son? And then consider this question, why would anyone reject Him? Why would anybody reject Jesus? And this is a question that we don't have to think about too much because the Bible gives a crystal clear answer to this question. Jesus is rejected by those who love their sin more than they love Jesus Christ. And this rejection will mean condemnation on the final day. This is what Jesus himself says in John chapter 3 verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And the Bible is clear about this. This will be the sad testimony of many on the final day. They will reject the Son. They will prefer their sin. And they will be condemned forever for what they have done. But this is not the testimony of all. Praise be to God. Number 10. Jesus Christ was received by others. Verse 12. But to all who did receive Him... Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Many rejected Jesus, but praise be to God, some received him. They received him, John says in verse 12, by believing in his name. By putting their trust in Jesus Christ. You see, those who received Jesus... They've learned something. They've learned to look away from themselves. And they've learned to look to Christ alone. 
for right standing with God. Those who receive the Son look away from themselves. They look away from themselves. They do not trust in their own works. They put their trust in the perfect work of the Son. They believe in His name. They rest upon Jesus. The one who lived the perfect life of obedience that we should have lived. We can't look at ourselves because we failed. We sinned. The wages of our sin is death. But praise be to God, there's another to look to. He's been tempted in every way that we are. And yet he's without sin. He's the perfect, holy, righteous son of God. Look to Christ. Not only did he live the life that we should have lived. He died under the curse of God that we should have died under. The father crushed the son, Isaiah 53 says. The father crushed his son. He was bruised by the father. He was crushed by the father. He died on the cross suffering most of all the curse of God the father. The punishment for sin was poured out on the lamb of God. And those who received the son... They look to Him. They look to Him. They deserve to be punished forever. But they look to the One whom God sent. The One who bore our sin in His body on the tree. The One who bore our curse in our place. This is the gift of grace. All my sin laid upon Jesus. And all His righteousness granted, gifted, to us. That's what it means to receive Him. What it means to receive Him. The grace of God. To rest upon the finished work. Of the incarnate Son. To receive Him. To believe in His name. Now that, now that act of receiving Christ. And believing in His name. It's an absolute miracle. In the heart of a sinner. And I want you to understand that. Faith in Jesus Christ. You did not get it from yourself. It was put there by another. It's an absolute miracle in your heart to receive the Son. Which brings us to number 11. Jesus Christ is received by a miracle. In verse 13, those who receive Jesus are described in this way. Those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of God. This is a reference to the new birth. The impartation of divine life into the soul of a sinner. This is the doctrine that makes the religious really uncomfortable. You mean there's something more that has to happen to me than just knowing some stuff and just coming to some meetings? Jesus said you must be born again or you'll never see the kingdom of God. Those who are born of God have been regenerated, born a second time, born from heaven, born from above. They were old. They've been made new. They've been recreated. And John makes sure that we understand this is the sovereign work of a gracious God. If you have been regenerated, if you have been born again, you have no one else to thank and to praise but God. You are born of God. You are born of God. This means that there are no ordinary Christians. 
There's no such thing as an ordinary Christian. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you have received the Son, then this is a God-wrought miracle in your heart. The Holy Spirit has come upon you, took out the heart of stone and given you a new heart that loves Jesus, that looks to the Son. There's nothing ordinary about a Christian. It's a miracle. And the souls of believers being born into a Christian family does not mean that you are born again. John is really clear about this. It is not of blood. So you ask someone if they're a Christian and they say, yeah, Mama was a Christian, Mom was a Christian, Daddy was a Christian, I grew up as a Christian. John wants you to understand this really clear. You cannot inherit the new birth. It doesn't come to you by blood. You cannot get infected by your parents. It doesn't come by blood. It comes from God. It comes from God. And neither is your own will the decisive factor. There's a lot of controversy about this, but look how clear it is. Look how clear it is. If you're born uh, again, if you are born again and look into Jesus, John says, that didn't happen because of the will of man. That happened because of God. That happened because you were acted upon. This is why we praise God. We are the objects of sovereign, undeserved, unmerited grace. Number 12, Jesus Christ is glorious. In, John, in verse 14, John says that the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. And then John says this, we beheld His glory. We beheld His glory. They saw the glory of Christ. They saw the glory of Jesus. This glory is defined in two ways here. Glory as the only Son from the Father. Glory full of grace and truth. The incarnation of Jesus is the ultimate manifestation of the glory of God. There's nothing boring about Jesus. If you're bored with Jesus, the problem is not with Jesus. The problem is with you. And I don't say that in a condescending way. You need light. You need your eyes open. He is glorious. Full of grace and truth. I want to read these words in Isaiah 53. And I want us to understand that this is a veiled glory. This is a glory that you only see by faith. Isaiah 53 verse 2 says this, He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. And He was despised, and we esteemed Him not. This is a veiled glory. There's coming a day where we're going to see the glory of Jesus by sight. But in the meantime, we have to behold the glory of Jesus by faith. And what faith, God wrought faith in our hearts allows us to see is beyond what appears to be nothing special. Which is exactly what Isaiah said. We esteemed Him not. There was no form or beauty that we should look at Him. And so what faith in Jesus Christ allows us to see is beyond what appears to be completely ordinary. Nothing special at all. 
But faith in Jesus allows us to see that this is the glorious one. This is the promised one. This is the one who had no beginning, whose glory is absolutely limitless. This is what a Christian is. A Christian is one who has seen the glory of Christ by faith. Those who receive him, who believe in his name, have seen his glory. They don't think Jesus to be this factual truth that they learn about and study and then put in a box on a shelf. He's the glorious one. He's the glorious one. He's the one like the buried treasure in a field. This is how much glory Christians see in Jesus Christ that a Christian gladly sells all that he has just to buy the field, just to dig up the treasure and have the treasure. That we, would, that we would count everything else in this world as loss compared to the gain of gaining and knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are born again see glory. So one of the most important diagnostic questions to ask yourself. Have you been born again? How do you know? What think you about Jesus Christ? What do you say about him? Is he a treasure to you? Born again, those who are born again see glory. They are not bored with Jesus Christ. He's the glorious one. So this is the nature of who Jesus is. Twelve doctrines of Christmas. Twelve glimpses of our Savior. And the goal is that our minds would be full of these truths about Christmas. His coming forth is from eternity, from ancient of days. He is God in human flesh. He is our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious one. And so a closing question to you this morning is, what have you done with him? I want you to think about that. What have you done with Jesus? Have you received him by faith, like the ones in verse 12? Or have you rejected him as fable, like many who came before you? Have you seen his glory, like those in verse 14? Or in your blindness, have you dismissed him as boring? Have you been born again? Have you been Born again. Don't you understand? This is why he came. Don't you understand? This is what Christmas is about. He came into this world to give us grace, to save us from our sins. Matthew 1 21. Call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We just sang it a moment ago that he was born to raise the sons of earth. This is why he's here. He's born to give the second birth. You need to be born again and only Jesus can save you. And so I want to encourage you this morning, come to Christ. Come to him. Trust in Jesus, not in yourselves. Believe in him. Receive the son and receive life in receiving Christ. I want to encourage you this morning to open your eyes and behold what's there, that there is none like Jesus and there is no one else who was sent to save you from your sins. Trust Him, love Him, follow Him, serve Him, await His return. 
Lose everything else if it means gaining Christ. Come to Christ. Receive the greatest gift, the gift of grace. This is why He's here. This is why He came. And to all the saints that have received Jesus, by believing in His name, verse 12, John reminds us in verse 16 that we have partaken of His fullness. This is what I want to leave you with. This morning, verse 16, from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. I want you to think about that this morning from his fullness, brothers and sisters, from his fullness, we have received. Think about what that phrase communicates, all that all those glorious things that we just talked about, about Jesus Christ, the totality of all of them, gather them up together, the totality of the glory of the person of Christ. And that's what the word fullness represents, all of him. And John is reminding us that Jesus didn't give us part of himself. We have partaken of his fullness, all of Jesus, all of his glory. Christian, John says that the cup that we have drank from is the cup that is labeled the fullness of Jesus Christ. We have partaken of His fullness. And so be encouraged by the logic, the order of this passage. Those who have seen His glory by faith are those who receive from His fullness. And these are the ones that receive a never-ending supply of grace. And this is how John says it in verse 16. What can we expect as those who receive from the fullness? John says grace upon grace upon grace upon grace and then grace and more grace and grace in place of grace and grace after that and grace and grace and grace. And perhaps we could believe that the grace of God would one day run out if its source were not from this well that John calls the fullness of Jesus Christ, from His fullness, we have received grace upon grace. This is why, from the very beginning, the Christmas story is good news of great joy for all peoples. Let's pray. Lord, we come today and we want to thank You for the gift of Christ, Lord. We ask for your help. God, we know we ought to treasure him. And we do, Lord. And we ask, God, that you would help our unbelief this morning. That you would cause the word of Christ to dwell richly within us by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. Incline our hearts to worship Jesus, to treasure Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.